It's a pleasure to be here and an honor to have been asked to deliver this lecture. Um, my topic is uh, Russia is back. As Tim noted, it's a good moment for a topic of this type. During the years after the Cold War, we got used to discounting uh, Russia as we focused on the large issues of the post-Cold War uh, era, globalization, American unipolarity, European integration and enlargement, the Balkans conflicts, how to deal with failed states, and on and on and on. Um, in most of these, Russia seemed marginal, if uh, relevant at all. We grew accustomed to taking decisions without Russian participation and sometimes against Russia's express wishes. We could do that because Russia was weak, disorganized, and seemingly dependent on us. A quick look at issues on the table recently, in contrast, not least in the United Nations General Assembly uh, this week, uh, suggests that Russia is very much back on the agenda. At the beginning of this year, President Obama promised to reset America's relationship with Russia. The major U.S. initiative at the moment is a renewal and uh, strengthening of the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty with the Russian Federation as a basis for a larger initiative on nuclear nonproliferation with Iran, not least in the back of our minds. And this is joined by significant efforts to increase pressure on Iran. Uh, Russian support is essential in that uh, task. And elsewhere, the Secretary General of NATO um, a week and a half ago called for a reset of NATO's relations with Russia. Resetting is obviously uh, in vogue. Um, Europe as a whole may be on the brink of embarking on a major consideration of the region's security architecture in order to attempt to address Russia's concerns over unequal uh, treatment. Clearly, something has changed here. Russia is back front and center on the Western policy agenda. My questions are, how did we get here? What does it mean? What should we do about it? Uh, I'd like to uh, begin with uh, a few remarks about why I think this is an important subject. I'll follow that with a number of historical observations um, and then briefly discuss Russia's changing position in the 1990s. I then want to look at the re-emergence of Russia as a major power uh, during this decade, and that involves comment not just on the physical recovery of Russian power, but also on the evolution of Russia's understanding of international relations, which differs from that of liberals like me, considerably. Um, and I'll conclude with an examination of the significance of Russia's role in European and global politics. I hope you'll permit me, before uh, digging into this, uh, a little bit of truth in advertising. I began my university studies as a student of Russian language and literature. I then moved on to PPE and then to international relations. In that area, my specialization, as Tim said, was uh, Soviet foreign and security policy. The early stage of my career was the last stage of the Cold War. Um, and the Soviet Union collapsed, creating a real mid-career crisis. Uh, 
It's not fun for an academic to have his or her object of study simply evaporate. Um, and so I worked on the Caucasus uh, for a while and Central Asia. But I have never uh, escaped a vague nostalgia for the good old days of my youth. Um, great power competition, deterrence, intervention, the nuclear balance, ideological competition, and missile defense. And now, perhaps, here we go again. So it's uh, back to the future. Getting more serious, why should we care about Russia's reemergence? This can, I think, be answered in at least two ways. One is with regard to Europe. Years ago, I participated in a television panel, uh, something I do infrequently, I have to say. Um, uh, this panel included a very distinguished German journalist and specialist in foreign affairs. And he argued that Europe's major security problem today uh, is what it has been for the past 300 years. Russia is too big for Europe. Now that's uh, arguably a curious thing for a German to say. Um, but there you are. What he was getting at is that Russia has raised significant issues for Europe ever since it emerged onto the scene in the 17th century. One issue here is simply geography. We are, I think, reasonably convinced that everything west of Russia is in Europe. And we are also convinced that everything southeast of Europe, uh, southeast of Russia, excuse me, is not in Europe. But Russia is between. Or maybe it's both uh, in this context. In other words, Russia embodies Europe's boundary problem. This is true also culturally. Russia did not share many of the formative experiences of modern Europe, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment. And many in Russia historically have found elements of that cultural heritage to be deeply threatening to um, cultural attributes that Russians, or at least many Russians, value. Russian intellectual history for the past couple hundred years has been enlivened by debates about whether Russia should embrace the West and its values or whether it should follow its own course, if necessary, in opposition to the West. And I think that that is true of Russian debates today and over the past 10 years as well. In addition to geographical and cultural ambiguities and boundary problems, there is the more concrete matter of European security. Russia has been a great power in the European system since the 1700s. Its history as a state has been punctuated by uh, moments of near crisis, near collapse, followed by moments of reconsolidation and uh, assertion. In 1812, for example, Napoleon occupied Moscow. Three years later, the French, Parisian French, acquired the word bistro, which was the uh, uh, gallification or gallicization, I guess, of the Russian word bistra, meaning quickly, which is what Cossack officers used to shout at French garçons in the cafes of Paris. <clears throat> to, move, to go fast forward a little bit, in January 1943, German troops had taken Belarus and Ukraine. They were besieging Leningrad, and they were sitting in most of Stalingrad. They destroyed over a third of the USSR's industrial capacity, killed a substantial portion of the Soviet population, um, and uh, basically destroyed most of the cities in the western part of the Soviet Union. 
Two years later, Soviet troops took Berlin. Within five years, the USSR had constructed a military and political cordon sanitaire from Poland on the Baltic to Bulgaria on the Black Sea. So Russia has courted disaster many times, often as a result of its quarrels with other European powers, but it seems always to bounce back. <clears throat> Given its size and its distinctiveness, and the fact that it does bounce back, the problem uh, of how to integrate Russia into the European security system has been a constant of recent European history. Is Russia a state to be balanced against? Is it a state with which others can cooperate? The nature of European security as a whole has strongly depended on the ways in which and the extent to which Russia is engaged. In the current period, it is hard to see how one could have a stable regional security structure if Russia were left out contesting the settlement as it is doing now. Turning to the larger canvas of international relations and continuing with the theme on why the subject might be important. Many see the re-emergence of Russia in the past 10 years as part of a wider shift in the global distribution of power, a shift away from Europe and North America. In this respect, Russia tends to be uh, linked together with other rising states, Brazil, India, China, in a grouping that has come to be known, courtesy of Salomon Brothers, as the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China. Uh, as a group, these states share, to varying degrees, an historical resentment over the global dominance by the Euro-Atlantic region, and they have real doubts about many of the liberal values promoted by Western democracies in the international system as a whole. As power shifts away from the Euro-Atlantic core, we may risk returning to a world of multipolar uh, competition. At the very least, uh, at least this uh, shift raises important questions about how we adjust the institutional architecture of international relations to take account of the new reality of power. I noticed that two days ago, the G7 disappeared uh, all of a sudden to be replaced finally by the G20. That's an example. In general, I think it makes sense to try to keep these new powers inside cooperative arrangements. But the question for us is what concessions do we make in order to do so? Finally, and most obviously, the Russian Federation possesses the largest number of nuclear explosive charges and strategic launching systems of any country in the world. Unless we wish to return to a world of deterrence through mutual assured destruction, that wonderful MAD, um, it makes sense to build and sustain constructive and respectful relations with Russia. On the meat of the topic, I don't want to go into detail on uh, Russia's 1990s decline. A few illustrations suffice. When the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, Russia's economy collapsed with it. The data, of course, are a bit fluffy from the 1990s, but there was a, a drop in official GDP of around 50% in Russia. Um, I think we are dropping by about 4% as a result of the recession. Um, it gives you a sense of the dimension and the difference. Unemployment grew massively. Inflation was substantial. The value of the currency largely evaporated, taking with it the accumulated uh, savings of a large portion of the population. 
1989, the Russian economy was three times the size of that of China. Uh, by the end of the 1990s, Russia's official economy was roughly the size of Denmark's. On the political side, the central state lost control of its country. The executive and the legislature locked themselves into a, a death struggle that culminated in 1993 with the Russian army shelling Russia's own parliament in Moscow. The regions, by and large, left to their own devices, generated their own rules and laws. They restrained interregional trade inside the Federation in order to be able to provide for their own populations. In other words, the national economy was busting up into little bits. <clears throat> Regional leaders bought security from local military commanders, since these commanders were not getting support for their units from the central budget. Law enforcement basically harvested money from the population because the state was unwilling, uh, uh, well, unable, I should say, to pay a living wage to police and the judiciary. In the meantime, a botched privatization at the beginning of the 1990s um, opened the way to the accumulation of huge wealth by entrepreneurs who understood the opportunities and who were willing to do what was necessary to take the jewels of the former Soviet economy. Their rapidly accumulating fortunes allowed them to exercise a disproportionate influence on the political process typified by their buying of Boris Yeltsin's re-election in 1996. There were predictable social consequences uh, from this catastrophe. Demographic decline had begun in the late Soviet era. It accelerated during this chaotic transition as women uh, wisely were reluctant to bring children into such a world and as uh, men unhappily drank themselves into a substantial reduction in average male life expectancy. Russia's population in uh, 1989 or 1990 was 147 million people. It is now courting 140 million and shrinking between 608,000 people a year. So you have a real demographic crisis on the scene. Turning to the foreign dimensions of the collapse, Russia first lost its Eastern European allies, then it lost the other republics of the USSR. It attempted to resist NATO expansion to no avail in the mid-1990s, and again in the first half of this decade. The second wave of NATO's expansion uh, brought NATO onto Russia's borders in Central Europe. When Russia opposed uh, NATO's actions in Bosnia in 1985, it was essentially ignored when NATO uh, invaded, uh, or sorry, attacked Serbia in 1999 as part of the Kosovo affair. Russia again objected to no avail. By the mid-1990s, Western states had moved to robust support of the sovereignty of the non-Russian former Soviet republics, again ignoring Russian preferences. Russia wanted to maintain a sphere of privileged interest in the region. Well, enough said. Uh, the mess left many people in my business wondering by the mid-1990s whether the collapse of the USSR would be followed by the disappearance of Russia itself. Recovery began with the arrival of Vladimir Putin as Prime Minister in 1999 and as President uh, in 2000. He set out quite deliberately to rebuild the Russian state and to restore it to a position of power in international relations. 
His project had three elements, economic revival, political consolidation, and uh, the restoration of Russia's national pride. The economy picked up reasonably quickly, fueled, uh, with no pun intended, by rapid rises in the price of oil and gas. Increasing foreign exchange revenues allowed Russia to stabilize its currency and to pay off its external debt. By now, they have, uh, they have accumulated the fourth largest foreign exchange reserves in the world. Growth during this decade has averaged 7 to 10% annually. Um, and turning to uh, politics, <coughs> benefiting from close relations with the uh, security services, uh, he learned, uh, Putin learned his German while working for the KGB in the former German Democratic Republic. Uh, he fairly quickly reimposed central control over Russia's regions and tamed the Russian parliament. He also asserted the state's authority over the country's financial oligarchs. The deal for them was uh, pretty simple. They supported him or they got hurt. Among those who got hurt, um, the lucky ones left the country and they're now mostly living in Chelsea. Um, and the less lucky ended up in jail. He has also effectively silenced opposition parties and are more or less the media, the free media anyway. The official media are hardly silent in Putin's uh, and Medvedev's Russia. <clears throat> Finally, he has reinvested in the country's military. And the effects are evident in Russia's successful second war in Chechnya, which is now effectively over and also in Russia's attack on Georgia in August of 2008. And turning to the third element of Putin's rebuilding project, uh, national identity, he has restored considerably Russia's sense of national pride and self-respect. There's nothing like bashing the Georgians to make uh, people in Moscow feel uh, good, I guess. Um, so, um, in short, the good news is that the Russian state has been largely restored. The bad news is it's not the one we wanted. With the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the USSR and communism along with it, we thought we were entering a period of peaceful and cooperative relations among liberal democratic or democratizing European states. The political reform of the Russian Federation is uh, hardly democratic and more likely semi-authoritarian. Power is concentrated in the executive or, more strongly, in the hands of a small group of people around Mr. Putin. Organized opposition in Russia is next to impossible. The media, as I mentioned, have been substantially uh, restricted. Its practitioners intimidated by the frequent unexplained murders of prominent liberal journalists. Um, pour uh, décourager, I guess. The human rights of the population are frequently violated. Uh, organi organizations promoting them are harassed. I noticed that the president of uh, the Chechen uh, Republic within the Russian Federation said yesterday that Russia's principal remaining human rights organization was an instrument of the West devoted to the destruction of Russia. It gives you a flavor for the uh, uh, conversation. The rule of law is notional, and the commanding heights of the economy, as we used to call them, have fallen increasingly under state control, either through parastatal corporations 
or through the dependence of entrepreneurs on the goodwill of the political leadership. You do it our way or you take the highway. The national identity that has uh, re-emerged in Russia is nationalist, chauvinistic, and competitive. This leads me to a few comments on current Russian perspectives on uh, international relations in Europe and in general. First, it is evident that the Russian elite was not amused by its treatment during the 1990s and in the early years of this decade. In their view, the West had taken advantage of Russia's post-Cold War weakness to make unilateral gains at Russia's expense in Central Europe, in the Baltics, and in the Balkans. One commonly cited grievance is NATO enlargement, including into the territory of the former Soviet Union, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. We might see NATO as a cooperative mechanism for enhancing security in the European region and beyond, as in Afghanistan. Russians, in contrast, tend to see it as a Cold War artifact that should have been dismantled with the end of the Cold War, but which was retained as a means of making further gains at Russia's expense. We might see our actions in the Balkans in the 1990s as an effort to protect civilians in the face of massive, often ethnically motivated violations of their rights. Russians, in contrast, see our efforts as, an, as part of a, effectively a conspiracy to exclude Russia from a significant role in a sub-region, southeastern Europe, <coughs> where Russia has strong interests of its own and a long tradition of engagement. As my good friend uh, Dmitry Trenin, hardly a hardliner, uh, put it, by 1999, when NATO wrestled Kosovo from the hands of Belgrade, NATO had already enlarged with the additions of the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland. Russia, for the first time in 250 years, had ceased to be a power in Europe. Whatever the West's intentions were, this sequence was perceived in Moscow as a deliberate effort to reduce Russia's power and influence in the European system. Turning to a NATO enlargement, we might see NATO's consideration of extending membership further into the former Soviet space as a means of fostering security and democracy in that region. Russia sees it as a direct threat, placing the world's most powerful military coalition next to Russia's points of greatest strategic vulnerability. In other words, as a hostile act. Underlying these specific concerns is a more general Russian perspective on international politics that differs profoundly from conventional views in Western Europe. We tend to, well, we like to think anyway, uh, in the West that the region has evolved beyond its Westphalian phase of great power competition towards a security community in which power is no longer measured in terms of military capacity, the use of force is obsolete, and relations among states are handled cooperatively for mutual gain. For Russians, relations among states in a pluralistic international system remain competitive Security is achieved unilaterally. Military power matters. Control of territory matters. Force in pursuit of state interest remains an, in, uh, an option of policy. These perspectives are amply evident in the Russian understanding of their surrounding region, the former Soviet Union. 
Since 1991, i.e. since the beginnings of the Russian Federation as an independent state after the Soviet collapse, Russia has claimed special rights and responsibilities in the rest of the, Soviet, the former Soviet Union. Essentially, they have claimed a more or less exclusive sphere of influence there. <clears throat> now, in the 1990s, Russia lacked the capacity to act effectively on that aspiration. Now, Russia does have substantial capacity to structure its immediate surroundings. After NATO's last round of enlargement, the focus moved more clearly on NATO's part to the remaining non-Russian post-Soviet states. In 2007, the United States, or more appropriately, President Bush, proposed that Georgia and Ukraine be put on the path to NATO membership. Russia responded immediately and unequivocally, stating that the entry of those two countries, Georgia and Ukraine, into the alliance was unacceptable, as it would pose a security threat to the Russian Federation. In April 2008, nonetheless, uh, NATO declared its intention that at a future date, the two states would join the alliance. In August of the same year, uh, Russia provoked a war with Georgia and then invaded uh, and substantially dismembered uh, my second favorite country, causing the worst crisis in Russia's relations with Western states since the end of the Cold War. In short, they drew a line in the sand. They figured we were crossing that line, and so they acted to enforce the line. Um, this is hardly sort of postmodern, post-military, post-competitive Europe. <coughs> it's worth noting, by the way, that this was the first interstate war in Europe since World War II, and arguably a clear violation of evolving international norms prohibiting aggression. See the United Nations Charter, among other documents. It was followed by Russian recognition of those parts of Georgia that it occupied as independent states. And that was a clear violation of norms and law concerning uh, territorial integrity. In the wider international arena, Russia became a significant stumbling block on a number of key policy concerns of Western states, not least uh, Iran, but also in such areas as uh, the possibility of effective multilateral action to address challenges such as those in Darfur in Sudan. In uh, response to the now cancelled American project to install ballistic missile defense systems in Poland and the Czech Republic, Russia threatened to install short-range mis missile systems in Kaliningrad, an exclave of the Russian Federation surrounded by EU states. <clears throat> Russia has manipulated energy exports for political effect in Ukraine, Belarus, and the Baltic Republics with significant downstream effects for the European Union itself since we're at the end of the pipe. And so when the oil stops flowing, it stops flowing here as well as in, or not here, but in Central Europe as well as in Ukraine. Russia has effectively challenged the uh, legitimacy of the existing European security architecture and is pressing for fundamental reform. The reform that they appear to prefer is towards a system in which it has the authority essentially to manage uh, its part of Europe as it sees fit. The Russian government has actively sought to deepen cooperation with, uh, more broadly, with emerging powers as a counterbalance to the West. 
And the Russian Federation has consistently stated its preference for a return to a world of balancing between multiple centers of power. In short, and moving to a conclusion slowly, uh, after a 15-year hiatus, we are once again faced with that perennial question, how to engage Russia effectively in European and international affairs. Now, you might say that this is all just a little bit exaggerated. Um, Vice President Biden said a couple months ago in respect to Russia and Russia's re-emergence, they have a shrinking population base, they have a withering economy, they have a banking sector and structure that is not likely to be able to withstand the next 15 years. They're in a situation where the world is changing before them and they're clinging on to something in the past that is not sustainable. So apparently for Mr. Biden, we shouldn't worry uh, too much. Um, now, the perspective I just presented of Mr. Biden uh, may be a bit of an overstatement, but in his defense, it bears remembering that Russia, despite all of its economic growth, currently makes up about 2.5% of global gross domestic product. Its economy is massively unbalanced in its reliance on natural resource production and export. Efforts at economic diversification to create a balanced, multifaceted economy have not had as much effect as they might have liked. The Russian underinvestment in energy production raises questions about its capacity to maintain current levels of exports in the long term. And on demography, it stands to lose another 10 to 15 million people in the next 20 to 30 years, unless it finds a way to uh, reverse its demographic decline. Finally, it remains vastly inferior to the United States or to the EU in most attributes of state power. Nonetheless, I think it would be unwise to dismiss the significance of Russia's qualified reemergence. First of all, the reemergence isn't over yet. Given projections of energy prices in global and regional markets, uh, Russia will continue to grow fairly quickly for some time to come. As demonstrated in Georgia, it is already capable of real damage in its neighborhood. Its growing assertiveness is placing strain on European institutions, the EU and NATO, uh, as members differ widely on the nature and extent of the problem that Russia poses. And at the global level, Russian cooperation continues to be necessary across a wide array of, ch uh, of challenges. These range from the very specific, non-proliferation, strategic arms control, Iran, Afghanistan, for that matter, to the very general, climate change, energy security, or the reform of international financial architecture. So, um, what to do? Uh, this is always the hard part for me. Um, I often say that it is the role of academics to uh, study problems, not to give answers. Um, but I think that's probably an easy way out, so I'll take the tougher uh, road. Now, as my colleagues in the department know, uh, I am no diplomat, so you should take anything I have to say about diplomacy with reservations. But it strikes me that several directions in our approach to uh, Russia are desirable. First is restraint. 
If part of the problem is the Russian sense that we have for the last 20 years taken advantage of their weakness, then we should stop doing things that strengthen that impression. In this context, by the way, I think that further NATO enlargement uh, should come off the table for the foreseeable future. I think it would be a gross error to attempt to include either Georgia or Ukraine in particular uh, in NATO. A related point is that we may need to revise our expectations, uh, which are essentially derived from liberal ideology. Russia is recreating a state that differs in many ways from what we might like to see. But there's little we can do about that, at least in the short and medium term. Democratization and economic liberalization are also off the table in Russia for the time being. And we should not hold our relationship with Russia hostage to Russian departures from our values. A second point is improvement in consultation. If part of the problem we've encountered is a, sense, a Russian sense of grievance at having been ignored on major European and international issues, um, in other words, if part of the problem is, a, uh, is about recognition of status, then we should do as the Americans are in fact doing, which is to seek to treat Russia as a major player who deserves to be consulted as an equal on major issues affecting the international uh, system. In this context, uh, and going back to this uh, chestnut about uh, uh, redesigning European security architecture that the Russians seem captivated with, um, I would favor a multilateral uh, conversation about that and about the place of NATO, the EU, and the OSCE, uh, and for that matter, Russia's own sub-regional multilateral structures, the CIS, uh, the place of all of those acronyms in a renewed architecture. Um, I have thought a lot about that proto-negotiation, and I have to say there are many, many uh, hills to climb along the way uh, to agreement. But I think we need to recognize that a security system from which a major player feels excluded, or which it deems illegitimate, is a problem. A third uh, and related point is the need to try to deepen cooperation with the Russian Federation. Not easy. However, although there are many conflicts of perspective and interest between Russia and the West, there are many areas of shared interest as well. Russia fears a Taliban victory in Afghanistan possibly even more than we do. Russia has little interest in an Iran armed with nuclear weapons. Russia, uh, like us, will be a victim of climate change. <clears throat> Russia's economy, like ours, was deeply damaged by a financial crisis that arose, not least, from the weakness of international regulatory structures. Our interest in energy, uh, stability of energy supply, is matched by their interest in stability of demand for energy, since that is their major export, and so on and so forth. In short, we should actively and inclusively explore areas where cooperation is possible, but we also have to accept that there will be areas of difference. But the fact that areas of difference exist in relations between states 
is no excuse for not exploring areas of cooperation. To conclude, it seems to me that the past 20 years illustrate the perils of uh, kicking people when they're down. Or as to quote Vice President Biden again, it's never smart to embarrass an individual or a country when they're dealing with a significant loss of face. Russia is back. It is deeply unhappy with the status quo. It's not going away, and it can't be ignored. The risk of failing to address the challenge, I'm sorry to say, is an eventual return to a bifurcated and competitive European system. Now, having grown up in that system, and despite my occasional nostalgia, uh, I don't think it's a place we should uh, wittingly or unwittingly return to. Thank you very much. <laughs>